This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay. With the new CSB Men's Daily Bible, men are seeing the truths of Scripture in direct, effective ways. And with devotionals and insights that speak to every man's struggles and questions, this edition is changing the way men's groups and discipleship partners study together. Pre-order the new CSB Men's Daily Bible today and get the best deal offered with 50% off when you purchase at LifeWay.com and use promo code MDB50. That's LifeWay.com. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, we bring you a breakout session on preparing kids and adults to suffer, truths that comfort, sustain, and redeem in tragedy with Cameron Cole. This message was originally given at TGC's 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. My name is Cameron Cole, and uh, I'm the director of Children, Youth, and Family at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. I have worked at the same church for 14 years now. Uh, Still absolutely love it. Um, They're going to have to uh, carry me out of there in a coffin. Um, I'm the chairman of Rooted, uh, which is a ministry that promotes gospel-centered youth ministry. Yep, pump that fist, Charlotte. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we promote gospel-centered youth ministry. We want to equip and empower parents and churches uh, to disciple kids towards lifelong faith in Christ. Our vision for every kid is that they would receive gospel-centered, grace-filled, Bible-saturated discipleship in the church and at home. Uh, and so uh, what we're talking about today in terms of preparing uh, students and adults to suffer is near to my heart uh, as a youth pastor, knowing uh, what lies ahead uh, for kids and knowing that I want them to be prepared theologically um, to suffer well. So um, I want to kind of get a sense of why people have come to this workshop. Um, and so I'm going to have you, if you don't mind, closing your eyes for a second and vote with your hands. Um, yeah, I am a youth pastor. Uh, <laughs> If you uh, came to this session uh, because you genuinely want to learn how to equip people and prepare people to suffer well, raise your hand. Okay. If you came to this session because you are kind of down in the dumps and could really use the hope of Christ, raise your hand. And if you came to this session because you yourself have lost a child and you would like some hope and would like to be understood, raise your hand. Sorry, God bless you, friends. All right. Um, You can open your eyes now. Thank you so much. All right. So um, the text I'm going to work from today is uh, Psalm 130. Psalm 130. uh, I will read. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." Glory to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the hope that comes through your gospel. And Lord, we pray now that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. 
right, so I want to start out and just kind of tell you my story and tell you why it is that I um, have so much to say about hope and suffering and about uh, preparing people to suffer, uh, someone who's very, very grateful that the Lord prepared me to suffer. Um, you know, every person kind of has their wildest dream and every person has their worst nightmare. Uh, most people will encounter, you know, maybe one or the other, but generally not both. Uh, I encountered both in 24 hours. Uh, my wildest dream is truly that my children would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Uh, you can offer me anything in the entire world, and I will not take it above my children's salvation. Like, I want my children to know Jesus as their Savior. And so uh, on uh, November the 10th, 2013, uh, my little boy Cameron, who was three years old, he lost his Lego axe. And he says, Daddy, can we ask Jesus to find my Lego axe? And so I said, sure, man, nothing's lost in the eyes of God. And so we prayed, Jesus, help us find Cam's Lego axe. And so we uh, went and we found the Lego axe. There was a lot of pressure in finding that Lego axe, by the way, for the, the, the fragile faith of the three-year-old. Um, and uh, he goes, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so then he started to ask all these questions. He said, Dad, can we go see Jesus today? And I said, well, you know, buddy, we can't, you know, we, Jesus is with us now. You can't see him, but, you know, we know that he's here through the Holy Spirit. So he said, well, can we get in the car and go see Jesus? I said, well, no, you know, you'll see Jesus when you go to heaven. But until then, we just have to trust in God's word that Jesus is with us now, even though we can't see him. So then he started to ask questions about heaven. He said, am I going to see Adam and Eve in heaven? And uh, he had this very interesting fixation with Adam and Eve. And I did not, you know, I didn't tell him, buddy, that's like the worst story in the whole Bible. Um, but anyhow, he was really interested in Adam and Eve. And I said, yeah, you know, God forgives their sins in Genesis 3. And I think you'll see Adam and Eve. And he said, you know, I'm not going to eat from that tree. I'm going to eat that apple. Uh, and I said, buddy, we all eat that apple every day, you know. Uh, and my wife said, honey, that's why Jesus came. And uh, he said back, he said, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died my sins. And, you know, two things, you know, happened there. That I, at the, in the moment, I didn't quite realize. One, my child had professed faith in Christ. You know, my child was identifying that he knew that Jesus had died for his sins and that he, um, he knew that, that, you know, that there was a way to heaven through Christ. Uh, the second thing I did not realize is that was the last meaningful conversation I would ever have with him. Uh, my worst nightmare is twofold, or was twofold, I should say. Uh, I've been a youth pastor, you know, like I said, for 14 years. And so um, I became a Christian when I was in the third grade. And I have had a very, very easy life. Like, I'm a white American male. My parents are affluent. My parents are nice Christians who told me they love me every day. School came easy. Sports came easy. Friends came easy. The cushiest life you could ever imagine. If you're Cameron Cole, you should believe that God is good. You should believe that God loves you and that he has a wonderful plan for your life. And so I had this fear as a youth pastor that something really bad would happen and I would lose my faith and I would be a sellout and a fraud and a disappointment to all these kids to whom I had proclaimed the promises of the gospel and I would leave them high and dry spiritually. And so I thought, okay, what is the thing that would cause me to lose my faith? And I would always land at the same place. I would land on the death of my son. If Cameron died, I could not withstand that. And so, and I would have like nightmares. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, we lived on a street where people would drive irresponsibly fast. And I would wake up with this, you know, fear that someone had hit him by, with a car. And, and in that, uh, you know, nightmare, I would become angry and bitter and I'd walk away from the Lord and I would, you know, for, forsake my faith. Um, and so the night of November the 10th, my son professed faith in Christ. I went on a camp out. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I noticed at 7.30 that I had three missed calls from my wife in the span of a minute. And the fourth call was coming in. And so I picked up, my, picked up the phone and my wife said, you need to get to the hospital immediately. I said, what, what's, what's, what's going on? She said, no, you have to get to the hospital immediately. I said, honey, I, I can't drive to the hospital 45 minutes. Like with this, you're, you're in terror. Like what is going on? She started to cry. And she said, Cameron is dead. Um, he had just died in his sleep. And for a child over the age of one to die in their sleep is extraordinarily rare. It's about a one in 100,000 chance that a child will die in their sleep after the age of one. On a given night, there is a one in 625 million chance that a child will die in their sleep. And my son was the one in 625 million that night. 
And so, um, and so, you know, this was kind of the moment of truth. I had, I had in different ways anticipated this moment or seen this moment before. Uh, and what happened was contrary to my expectations. And this is not a matter of spiritual achievement. This is just the grace of the Lord and the fact that I started to realize that God had prepared me for this moment my entire life. Uh, and what came out of my mouth was, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that means that God is good, and this doesn't change that fact. And so um, it was stunning to me. It was stunning to me because I thought this would do me in. And in fact, what happened there is I saw that I really did still trust Jesus. I really still believe in him. Uh, and my confidence in him continued to grow. And so the pain, the, the emotional and physical pain that I was in for you know, two years was inconceivable. You know, like pain that you did not know existed. Um, and at the same time, during the whole process, I had hope. I had this sense, had this confidence that God could heal me and that God could redeem our life and that my life was not ruined as I had anticipated. And so um, in the next month, I would find myself saying over and over to my wife, Lauren, I would say, honey, I have no idea how a person could survive something like this if they didn't believe in dot, dot, dot. And it would always be some piece of biblical doctrine. I have no idea how someone could survive this if they didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, or if they didn't have the hope of heaven, or if they didn't know that God is an empathetic God, or if they didn't know about the possibility of joy and suffering. And so what I was finding was that it was biblical doctrine that was the backbone of me having hope. God had prepared me theologically to suffer over the course of my life. Uh, and so, and so, with that being said, you know, I, I've I've found this. Uh, I, I've said this repeatedly, but you know, um, on Dante's Inferno, what what does it say uh, on the over the door on the entry to hell? It says, "Abandon all hope, ye he enter here." I can handle, I can handle pain. I cannot handle life without hope, right? I mean, hell and hopelessness are synonymous. There is no hope in hell. And so a life without hope is a living hell. And so the thing, the, the kind of one of the promises and encouragement I would say, you know, as we talk today is that God does not necessarily reduce our pain. That, that he, he may in time, he definitely has for me in time, but God will always give us hope. God can always give us hope um, through his word and through his spirit. And so, um, I, just as kind of the, the broad brush of where we're going today, uh, the, the primary thing I want to communicate is that a rich biblical theology prepares people to suffer. A rich biblical theology prepares people to suffer. A child who is well catechized is being prepared to suffer well. A person who reads the Bible and sees, uh, sees you know, biblical concepts and doctrine in that is preparing him or herself to suffer. A person who, a church that preaches the word from beginning to end, from you know, the, the whole way through, is preparing people to suffer. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I want to focus on, on Psalm 130 uh, because uh, I, I see my story uh, and this concept, this truth in Psalm 130. Uh, it starts with a person who is absolutely at the worst. They are at the depths of woe. And then by the end, they're in this place of overflowing hope. They have an, a, an, an abundant sense of hope. And what is it between the two? What is it between the despair and the hope? It is biblical truth that they work through that takes them to the place of hope, even though their circumstances have not changed. And so... With that being said, we're going to work through Psalm 30. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to um, say so when after, after Cameron died, a month after he died, um, I wrote down the 12 truths that I was finding to be utterly essential uh, to my hope. The ones that I was saying to my wife over and over again. And then I wrote a personal confession, kind of took it and personalized those doctrines. So for example, God's sovereignty, my, my son's death is not meaningless. It's not an accident. God is in control of all things. And that means that his death is meaningful. I call that my narrative of hope. 
Uh, and that's the basis of my book, Therefore I Have Hope. And that narrative of hope, by the way, it's posted on the Rooted website today if you want to look at it. I, I, printing out 400 handouts doesn't travel particularly well. Um, so we just put it on the website at rootedministry.com, and you can, you can grab that if it would be helpful to you. Um, but what I want to look at here in, in Psalm 130, rather than going through all 12 of those doctrines, is, is three truths that are instrumental in Psalm 130 to bringing this person to a place of hope. First is lament. Second is gospel truth. Third is faith. Third is faith. And so uh, the hope is that what you'll see is that as the psalmist concludes, that we can find that there is hope in the Lord, for with him uh, there is steadfast love, and with him there is plenteous redemption. Uh, so first we're going to start off, and we're going to look at the worst. That's the starting point, the worst here. And so in verse 1, he says, out of the depths or that really awesome hymn, From the Depths of Woe. And so uh, the word, the Hebrew word here, ma'ach, ma'chim, and Dr. Futado, my Hebrew professor, probably just fainted if you heard me pronounce that so poorly. Um, this word, uh, it has aquatic connotations. So it's basically being submerged under the water. And uh, in, the, in the dictionary of biblical languages, uh, it says a sense of this word is being proximate to Sheol, so on the brink of hell. And, uh, you know, I, the way I kind of think about this image is, you know, the deepest point of the ocean that we know of is what they call the Challenger Deep. It's 6.8 miles below the surface. So for me, as I think about, like, my pain uh, in the days and the weeks and the months after my son died, it kind of felt like being in the Challenger Deep. And there is, like, six, there are 6.8 miles separating me from oxygen, separating me from life. That's the starting point here of this psalm. And so, uh, and, and another thing to notice here is this is a penitential psalm. So that means that the person, the despair that he is in is his fault. He's not a victim of circumstances. He is in the depths of woe because of something that he has done. And so... I think when it comes to the worst and really bad things, we can go in one of two bad directions. Uh, we can think sometimes that little sufferings or first world problems are kind of not important to God. You know, my cat died, so what? God doesn't care about that. Your child got cut from the basketball team, big deal. These things happen. And, you know, one thing, I, I think a lot of times when people will talk to me about their problems, so many people will have this sense of shame, like, oh, I've never gone through anything that you've gone through, but da-da-da-da. And I'm like, look, your worst is your worst, right? Like, praise the Lord that, that, you know, that maybe your worst is that you lost a job. That's okay. If that's the worst thing you've gone through, that's the worst thing that you've gone through. And if that's very, very painful and very disappointing to you, then that's that's okay. There's no shame in that. Uh, and so I think in particular with kids, something that we can do uh, is that we can minimize and marginalize their pain. Uh, you know, they notice on Instagram that their friends have excluded them and they are devastated. Or they, you know, get cut from a team or they're not starting on the baseball team or whatever it is. And we can act like, oh, please, you know, wait till you grow up, you know. But what we've got to realize is like these are the training grounds where God is teaching them how to trust him. I'll be totally honest to you, probably the most helpful trials in my life where the Lord taught me to trust him to heal my heart were breakups in high school and college. You know, I know it's looking back, you know, that I was devastated about the conclusion of a four week relationship, you know, <laughs> I mean, it is looking back. It seems so silly, but it was so real to me when I was 17 years old, you know? And that is really, when I like looked back at when I had a broken heart after my son died, a lot of times I would look back to breakups uh, and dating relationships in high school and college. And so one thing I would say is we want to be very careful not to minimize kids' pain, and we want to also, you know, dignify the situations they're going through uh, and use it as an opportunity to teach them to trust the Lord for healing. And we also never want to shame ourselves about our suffering. Never, never believe that uh, because what you're going through isn't considered a tragedy, that it's not significant to God and it's not something that the Lord wants to heal and redeem. Now, on the other end, I, I think that my problem was I thought there are some things in life that are too big for God to heal. I really did think that if I had a child die, that I would be ruined. I mean, I thought my life would be over. And, you know, when we look at scripture, 
I mean, Scripture is a rough road in terms of the stories and the circumstances that people go through. Think about the flood. (laughs) The entire world population dies, except for one family. And the Lord works redemption out of that. Um, Think about the the Samaritan woman and the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. These women who live lives, promiscuous lives, they've been shamed and ostracized, and Jesus sees them and he heals them. Uh, Think about the life of David. I mean, David effectively rapes a woman. He murders somebody. He is betrayed and his friend tries to murder him repeatedly. And Saul, he has another, he has a child die. He has another son who uh, tries to take over his throne and then dies. And we see in the Psalms that the Lord is constantly working to heal and redeem and forgive David. And so, you know, I think one thing that is valuable when we teach the Bible, I think it is very important for us to extract the human element of what people are going through. We don't just want to say that the woman who is, who is bleeding and who reaches out to touch Jesus, you know, that she had a medical situation. Like we want to get in to the fact that she was unclean. So that meant for 10 years, she couldn't go to the temple. And for 10 years, no one could touch her. She was without affection for 10 years. And that she had spent all of her money looking for medical treatments and they had failed one after the other. Get into the grit of the human element so that people see that God can redeem and heal real existential problems. So the encouragement there is that no matter, no matter where you are right now, no matter where the people that you serve may go, there's, there's always hope of redemption and healing in the Lord. So that's the worst. And so the first truth we're going to look at is lament. Lament. And so in verse 1 and 2, the speaker says, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he three times calls out to the Lord and cries to the Lord with cries of lamentation. And I will say it is unnatural for us to lament. Uh, Some of that is a sin matter, a matter of our flesh, that we want to manage and control our pain on our own. Uh, Some of that I think is cultural. Uh, I'm from the American South where for whatever reason we think that uh, the expectation of Christians is everything's fine, we're fine, things are good. Sorority smile. Um, and uh, for, you know, I think that could be a trend in just you know, uh, uh, among evangelicals that we feel like it's not okay to be honest about our pain. Um, there's a, a woman that I work with, his name is Krista, and her family uh, went through great financial hardship. She has elementary age kids, and every week they were selling items out of their house. They were selling furniture, they were selling their cars, and, and this was, you know, really unsettling and, and, and very difficult for her kids. And so she, she, Krista and her husband, Jason, they talked about teaching their children how to lament. They would go through Psalms. They would look at Job. They would look at Jesus. And they would teach their kids through the word how to lament as a family. And so I think that is, uh, I think that is something that we need to hear is that people need to be taught to lament. And we can see three characteristics of biblical lament here uh, in these two verses. First, we see that the lament is directed to God. Uh, who does he cry to in verse one? I cry to you, O Lord. Who is the direct address in verse two? O Lord. Who does he say, hear my cries, let your ears be attentive to my cry. So he does not hanging on to and trying to manage his pain. He is not grumbling, but instead he is communicating his pain to the Lord. So biblical lament directs our pain to God. Secondly, we see that biblical lament is reverential. The names of God uh, that, that in the Hebrew underneath the word Lord, one is Yahweh and the other is Adonai. Adonai is, is, is the, emphasizes the majesty of God, the authority of God. Uh, God is the one true God. So it appeals to his power and his transcendence. And so he is crying to the Lord with all his heart, but he is also remembering that God is God. There is no disrespect in his tone. Uh, and then finally, we see that, emotional, that lament is emotionally honest. It's emotionally honest. Um, I want to read Psalm 38, 1 through 11, and just listen to the honesty. Listen to how raw this lament is. O Lord, 
Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my days are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. That is raw. That is honest. And that is in the Bible. That is the word of God. So something that you need to hear and something that we need to tell people because they need to be taught how to lament, is that you have permission. You have permission to lament. You have permission to be confused. You have permission to be angry. And you need to take that to the Lord. You need to take that to the Lord. So that is lament. Second, we see the second truth that kind of is leading us towards hope uh, is gospel truth. And we'll see that in, in verses three and four, uh, the, the verses take us into the crosshairs of the gospel. Uh, first, I will say that Lamentations chapter 3, uh, verses, verse 21, was probably the most instrumental verse for me uh, in the year after my son died. Uh, Lamentations 3 starts, it says, but the, and by the way, if you've not read Lamentations, the first two chapters, I mean, they're hard to read. I think it's probably the most raw, intense, uh, painful uh, aspect of the Bible or, or section of the Bible. Uh, and so it is just, it is lament after lament after lament. And so there's this one glimmer of hope that you come to in Lamentations chapter three. It says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So he remembers the doctrine. He remembers the truth of God. And this is, these are the truths he remembers. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my torsion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So it is the truth of the Lord, and particularly truths that we associate with the grace of God, the gracious character of God, that bring him to this place of hope um, in the midst of great lament and sorrow. Uh, and so in, in verses uh, three and four, um, in verse three, he first says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Something I would like to point out here is that this is not Pollyanna. You know, he is coming with hard truth. Not, not the pleasant, God loves you, you know, God has a comfy pillow for you in heaven. Uh, this, is, this is hard truth to swallow. Uh, he acknowledges the justice and holiness of God. He acknowledges the sinfulness of man, and he acknowledges the judgment of God and eternal damnation all in this verse. Uh, and so one thing I would like to communicate, I read an article for this, about this on Gospel Coalition, is that hard doctrines are incredibly helpful in tragedy. Hard doctrines are incredibly helpful in tragedy. They protect you. They protect you. Um, I will tell you, the most negative emails and blog responses I've got to my book are on the sovereignty chapter, where I talk about how God, I'm not saying that God caused my son's death, but God was sovereign in and fully in control in my son's death. My, the Lord was not surprised that Richard Cameron Cole Jr. lived three years and 55 days. That was the Lord's intention, okay? Uh, and I would just say it's not until you're in that trench that you know how utterly helpful it is to hear that. When you are suffering and when you are in tragedy, the most spiritually dangerous place you can go is to become bitter and resentful and entitled. And I could feel myself going to that place because after my son died, it's not like the hits stopped coming. It wasn't like I'd paid my dues and like difficult things stopped happening. Lots of other difficult things continued to happen in those next two years. And I would find myself getting bitter and angry. And the thing that would catch me 
was the reality of what I had earned from God through my sin. <laughs> the reality is the only thing that I have earned from God is judgment. That's it. God does not owe me anything. He is not I'm not entitled to a comfortable life. I have not bartered with the Lord. Uh, and so when I would find myself going to this place of bitterness, as crazy as it sounds, I would write down the 20 worst things I had ever done. <laughs> and I would remember like, you know what? Like Jesus suffered for all of this. Jesus suffered for all of this. Like he, he I mean, he hears me, but like I am not entitled to anything. And so it was hard doctrine that protected me uh, when I was going to spiritually dangerous places like bitterness and resentment. So it's not, it's not just the hard doctrine here. We see uh, that he also comes back and says, but with you there is forgiveness. With you for this forgiveness. So what we see here is the, the truth is putting us in the cross here is the gospel, or what I would say the message of the cross. The cross tells us that God is so just that he must punish all sin. But God is so loving that he would punish all sin on the cross on himself in the person of Jesus. The cross tells us that our problem with sin is so bad that God himself would have to die on the cross. But it also tells us that our lives are so valuable to God, that we are so cared for and so precious to the Lord that he would rather die on the cross than give us up. And so part of what I want to communicate here is that one of the best things that we can do to communicate or to, to, to help people in suffering and to particularly prepare people to suffering, to suffer, is to constantly hold the gospel in front of them. Constantly hold the cross before them. Because existentially, the thing that you are really struggling with when you suffer is the question of whether or not God is good. And in particular, is God for me? Is God on my side? And nothing answers that question more emphatically than the cross. And so you can see here in this text, while this is obviously pre-Jesus, um, you can see he remembers the holiness and the justice of God and his own sinfulness, but he remembers the grace and the mercy of God and his forgiveness. And so this is instrumental to his hope. Finally, we're going to talk about faith. And, you know, the gospel truth leads him perfectly to this place of faith because he says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Therefore, you can be trusted. So, in verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Now, I want to say this respectfully um, and humbly. But, I, you know, when it comes to tragedy and pain, the world has no answers. The world really has no answers. Um, I, uh, I can remember just, just being driven crazy by this song. I, I like the song. It's a good tune. Uh, by the band Fun, Carry On. Uh, it, you know, here's, here's, how the, um, here's how the words go. Though I've never been through hell like that, I've closed enough windows to know that you can never look back. If you're lost and all alone, or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your past be the sound of your feet upon the ground. Carry on, carry on, carry on. Uh, and, and what it does not recognize is like when you are in such a deep place of grief, like your problem is there is no tank in the gas. Like there is, there is nothing, there's no power within to enable you to carry on. Uh, I will tell you one of the most depressing, depressing to a frightening degree, uh, places that you can go on the internet is to secular child loss blogs. I can remember going there. Oh, that was a mistake. Um, going there and, you know, people would write articles about losing children um, and from a purely secular perspective and you'd read the comments section and it was, it's, I, I really want to say this sensitively, it was cliches and platitudes and law, self-help. You'll, they'll always live on in your heart. They'll, you'll, you'll carry the memory with you forever. 
And I'm just going to tell you, folks, like, that does not get it done. That does not heal you. That does not give you hope, you know, when, when you are grieving something so deeply, when you are suffering in a great way. Uh, but here's the thing is a lot of times in Christianity, when we have an unbiblical view of faith, we sound just like the world. I mean, the day of my son's funeral, and I, I'm not bitter at this dude. This dude was doing the best he could, but he was a pastor and he, had, he always had big problems with my theology. That doesn't have anything to do with the, the story, but you'll kind of get it. You'll kind of get it in a second. He sent me a message the day of my son's funeral and it said, you know, I'm so sorry and so on and so forth. And he said, man, the best thing I can tell you is to keep on pressing on. I'm like, bro, I'm going to carry my son's coffin to a grave today. Keep on pressing on. Like, that is not getting it done. That is not getting it done. Uh, and praise the Lord, that is, not, that is not what all the Lord leaves us with. The Lord, the Lord points, us, uh, points us to faith as rescue. Faith in the Bible is better conceived as rescue. So we can, there are three observations we can make here about biblical faith in verses five and six. First is that biblical faith is based on the word. Verse five, he says, in his word, I hope. So it is, it is in response to truth. A, a mentor of mine named John Riddle, he would say, uh, the, first, the first step in faith is a proper response to God's truth. A proper response to God's revolution, revelation. Uh, and so biblical faith is in response to God's word. A second thing we can see here is that biblical faith involves total dependence. Total dependence on God. The word that is used repeatedly here in Psalm 30 is wait. Wait for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. I think the word wait is one of the best terms to describe the Christian life. Because when you are waiting, you are not in control. You have surrendered. That's why there is nothing that can create more anxiety than having someone else pick you up to take you to the airport. Particularly if that person is chronically late. And I'm not going to tell the story about how my friend Anna over here missed a flight because I was late picking her up to go to the airport a couple of months ago. But when we're talking about waiting on the Lord, uh, when he talks about waiting on the Lord here, he is saying, Lord, you have total control. You have total control here. And then finally, uh, oh, no, before I go there, Psalm 40, absolutely one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He picked me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. Here is this image of a person who is in a pit, and at the bottom of the pit is basically quicksand. Like, there is no climbing out of that pit. You must be rescued, right? That is the image we have here of biblical faith. Finally, biblical faith is expectant faith. We see that he twice says that he waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. So the text insinuates that you know, this is a watchman who is you know, looking to see if there are any enemies or any threats coming to the city. And this is the last watch of the night. And when will his watch end? When the sun comes up. Is there any doubt in the watchman's mind that the sun is going to come up? Is there anything more reliable in the world than the sun coming up in the morning, right? The sun is undefeated. <laughs> and so with that being said, he does say there is actually something more reliable than the sun coming up in the morning, and that is the redemption and the healing of the Lord. So we see that he waits, he's given the Lord control, but he is also expectant that the Lord in his time and on his terms and in his way can redeem and heal him. Uh, I think a helpful thing to do, and I'm not going health, wealth, and prosperity. Don't hear me wrong here. I think a helpful thing to do is to turn our prayers when we're in suffering into expectant prayers. And to pray, and when we pray with people who are suffering, to pray with expectation. Lord, my friend who has suffered another miscarriage, Lord, we thank you that you are going to heal her heart. We thank you that you're going to redeem her life in your time and your way. Lord, my friend who has just gotten the worst news in the world, Lord, I pray that he 
we, Lord, we thank you that you are going to redeem this situation. We thank you that you are going to restore and heal their life in your time, in your way. And we're not saying it's going to be on our terms. Uh, we're not saying it's going to be quick. But we are expecting that the Lord is a healer and that the Lord is a redeemer. That's the very nature of who he is. So to review, biblical faith is the word telling us that Jesus can rescue us. Biblical faith is allowing Jesus to rescue us. Biblical faith is expecting Jesus to rescue us. It is critically important that we teach people uh, a clear biblical picture of what faith really looks like. Because if Jesus is my co-pilot, plane is going to go down. All right, so we've gone from the worst, and we've seen lament, we have seen gospel truth, and we have seen faith. And so at the end, we see that the speaker has been brought uh, to a place of hope. And what is critical to understand is that his circumstances have not changed. I think a lot of time, a very dangerous and, and honestly depressing place that we can go in suffering is to just kind of go back and play the what if game. Oh, what if, what if this hadn't happened? Or what if this, this had happened? Or what if I had done this? And so on and so forth. And it can just put us in this depressing place of mental gymnastics and anxiety. Um, can't change our circumstances. But the Lord can change our heart within our circumstances, right? The Lord can give us hope. The Lord can heal us in difficult circumstances. And so we see here that the speaker who described himself as being in the absolute worst, in the depths of woe, now says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He has been brought to such solid ground, he's been healed and encouraged to a degree that he is able to look outside himself and to look to others and say, trust the Lord. You can hope in the Lord. He can redeem you. And so I think an encouragement uh, for us in our suffering, an encouragement, you have to be very careful about when you plant this seed, but a vision we can cast for people is what we see here in verses seven and eight, that the Lord can heal you and the Lord can redeem you and the Lord can take you to a place of solid ground where you might be able to minister to and help people who have gone through this thing that you're going through right now. That's a hopeful thing. That's a purposeful thing in life. Uh, some, I'm sure many of you are familiar with David and Nancy Guthrie. Nancy's doing a, a workshop down the hall. Uh, there are probably 70,000 people at it. Um, but, you know, David and Nancy lost two children. And um, they lead retreats for people who have lost children. My wife, Lauren, and I went to their retreat. They do five of these retreats a year where they just sit with people who have lost children and they minister to them. And, you know, and they share their testimony of how the Lord has brought them to a place of hope. And so the, the an encouragement, I would say, for you is that the Lord is a healer and a redeemer and he can take you to a place where you can have the same word. You can say, my friend who has gone through a divorce, hope in the Lord, for in the Lord there is steadfast love and plenteous redemption. My friend whose spouse has died, hope in the Lord, for in the Lord there is steadfast love and in him there is plenteous redemption. Uh, I will say to you, one of uh, a blessing of my life um, is that for me, and this is a, this is a praise the Lord kind of thing, um, but for me, uh, it's a powerful witness that I'm five years removed from my son dying I am like really grateful to be alive. You know, I really thought, I mean, there were definitely days in the months after my son died where I was like, Lord, if you could just let a Mack truck hit me, I would be so grateful. Uh, and there was just, you know, no excitement. Not, you know, I, I just, it was just not, it was not fun. It was awful. But today, like, I really, my, I've got a really good marriage. Like, I love my wife. She's really cool. And uh, my kids are like really enjoyable. I love my kids. They're really cute and fun. And I'm really into my job. Like, I really like my job. I'm all about doing children, youth, and family at the Church of the Advent. Um, I, like, get so fired up about Rooted 
Um, and I am just, I'm pretty amped about Alabama's offensive line for next year. Uh, I mean, we're going to average about 340 pounds across the front five, and I think we're going to be able to run the ball, and I like that. That gets me excited. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the fact that I have a functional life and I'm just, I'm glad to be alive, like, praise Jesus. The Lord has done healing and redemption in my life, right? And so, praise Jesus. Um, and so all that to say, uh, a hopeful thing to, to, for people, uh, you know, in, in not in the immediacy of, of suffering, but as, as they start to progress a little bit, is this word that we can say, and that what I can say to you right now, the last thing I'll say, is hope in the Lord. For in the Lord is steadfast love, and in him there is plenteous, plenteous redemption. Um, let me uh, pray for us. And then I'll take some uh, questions. Um, Lord Jesus, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness. We are so grateful that you're a redeeming God. We are so grateful that you are God the healer. Um, and Lord, I personally am so grateful that I have received that grace in my life. Um, Lord, for, for those of us who are here who are suffering, um, Lord, we pray that, we, that you would give them hope. Give them encouragement, Lord, um, that, that you can bring them to a place of solid ground that you can bring their life to a functional place where they would have joy. Um, and Lord, uh, give us wisdom, give us direction on how to prepare adults and kids to suffer. Give us a discipline, Lord, to teach your word, the good stuff and the hard stuff. Um, and Lord, empower us uh, to do your work because you, you are worthy, Lord. You are worthy uh, of us submitting our lives and serving you. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, does anybody have, yes? Yeah. Sure. Great. Okay. So the question is, uh, if you are with a person who is in deep suffering, what are some, what are good words to give? Nancy Guthrie actually published a really good book on this, uh, that instructs people on, um, you know, on how to care for people who are suffering. But I, let me, let me just say this first. I think that a lot of times people feel a pressure, like I've got to have the magic words. Uh, and you and a lot of times people don't enter into suffering because they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. I would encourage you. The first thing to say is, you know what? I wish I had the magic words, but I just do not know what to say. I, I don't know. I know that there's nothing I can say that can make this right. That right there, um, coming in with humility in that kind of way is really, really helpful. I do think that one thing that is particularly helpful to say is to, to lead with empathy, um, to let a person know, like, I want you to know that my heart is broken. Like, I am so sad with you in this. Um, I, I just remember like in the receiving, oh, it's so sweet. Don't cry. I can remember this, the receiving line at my son's funeral. These, these like three boys right in a row who were just like bawling and they were like trying to hold it back. But I just still, I will like never forget Will Hargrove and Michael Clark bawling their eyes out in the line at my son's funeral. And so I, I, I know sometimes I think the, the old wisdom is um, never let them see your tears. I personally don't necessarily agree with that. You obviously don't want to, you don't want to like come on people in a way that burdens them. But I found it helpful when I knew that people were suffering with me. One of the best letters I ever got was uh, from the headmistress at the, the school that's associated with my church. And she just wrote, my heart is broken with you. Yuna. It was awesome. So I hope that is helpful. Yes. Got it. Question is, what, what would, advice would you give to help an eight-year-old uh, cope with the loss um, of his mother? Um, first thing I would say is, uh, I've, so I've, um, I've you know, been with a lot of kids um, who have lost parents, who've lost siblings, uh, who've lost friends. And um, I, first off, ministry of presence is really, really key. Uh, just being there, just showing up, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, I had some kids in my youth group whose dad died about three years before my son died. Um, and about three or four months afterwards, I called all of them up individually 
and I got together with them and I asked them, what is your grief like now? What is it like three years after your dad has died? Because the thing that uh, is particularly true for kids is they're not, that they're not prepared for is that the tale of grief is going to be very, very long. You know, that, that girl, she was in the, the fifth grade when her dad died. You know, when she gets married, a valuable thing for me to say is, I want you to know that I grieve with you that your dad is not going to be here to be at this wedding. Like, I know that that may be something that's on your heart. Uh, and I, I like, I mourn that with you. So I would say, um, I would say to, be, to have a long-term ministry to a child, because especially as they mature emotionally, and they start to get greater understanding of things, um, to, to be a person who knows that, you know, that that's not in the back seat, but that's something that'll ever be present for, you know, with them, uh, I think that's a really valuable thing that you can do for kids. Um, we'll give the people in the back some look. How about uh, very back with gray vest on? Great. Okay. So I'm, I'm, if I'm hearing your question uh, properly, what I'm hearing is after the lament stage, what does joy look like? And when that, are you talking about like spiritual joy and intimacy with the Lord or like happiness, just happiness in the circumstances of life or both? Right. Got it. Right. Good. So uh, something I would say about like joy and suffering, um, I think one of the most compelling things about following Jesus uh, is the reality that we can have joy irrespective of the circumstances. Like when you look at uh, Jeremiah 34, um, it talks about, it's just a joy filled chapter, but it's talking about them being in exile. Uh, you talk about Jesus, you know, Jesus and John it tells the disciples like you are going to suffer but you will have joy in your sorrow. And so I, for myself, I would say, uh, this, is, this sounds total crazy talk, but if you're a believer, you get it. My son's funeral was one of the most joyful experiences of my life. Like the redemption of Jesus, the resurrection was in the gospel was never more real than it was the day of his funeral. Because I knew that this was now not just about, you know, heaven in an abstract way. This was now the place that my child lived. I now had the hope that I would be there with him uh, and it was because of Jesus. And it was a very joyful experience for me. So I think the one thing I, I would say to people is that when you, there is a joy in trusting Jesus, there is a joy in drawing close to Jesus, um, and intimacy and fellowship with Jesus. And so um, while the temptation is to draw away from the Lord, um, we should really, we really want to seek the joy of the Lord in intimate fellowship with him. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's my best. Um, back row, yep, you have goatee, you, yep, you, you're the one, you, yep, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, in a, in a kind way, not a dogmatic way, uh, oh, sorry, the question is, how do you instruct people who their understanding is that Jesus died so that they would be comfortable? Like the point of the Christian life, the fruit of obedience and following Jesus is just to be comfortable. That's the question. Uh, I would pull out the Bible. Um, I, know, I, know that sounds, uh, I know that sounds, I mean, like terribly elementary, <laughs> not being silly. Um, but I mean, like, look, you know, Romans 8 when, you know, the, we love Romans 8, how it talks about the hope of glory and all of these wonderful things. We don't really like that little subordinate clause that says, provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. You know, I mean, I think especially going through Paul's epistles and showing the reality that we are unified with Christ in his life and his resurrection. And we are unified with Jesus in his death. 
Uh, and, you know, we, and, 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 and particularly when we look at a book like Philippians, you know, Paul says it's a privilege to suffer with Christ. So, I mean, I, I, as, as simple as it sounds, I think we have to show people that, number one, that that, that is just false. It's a lie. Um, but also that there is hope in that, that there is joy in that suffering because we're unified with Christ. Um, so, again, not a very sophisticated answer, but um, so I got, yes, right here. Mm. That is really hard. That is really, really hard. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my bad. The question is, how would you uh, pastor to a family um, who has lost a child to suicide? Um, I have been around that a ton uh, in my career. Uh, Never anyone in my congregation, but I felt like there was a stretch of about five years where at least one child in the school system committed suicide. Um, oh man, I've never had that happen that, to me personally. Um, I just, oh man, gosh, I do not have, I don't have a great answer. I mean, my kind of playbook on that is really just to be, be I've, I've mainly been with students who've grieved in that. Um, but I, it's just really hard. I think to be present, to stay with them, uh, and I think probably to be really patient with their doubts and their questions. Um, there aren't like really easy cut and dry answers to that. I do remember um, uh, be, being at Nancy's retreat uh, and there was a couple there whose, whose child had died um, as a result of suicide. And one of the things that Nancy said is, yes, absolutely, people have choices, but like God is still sovereign in all things. You know, he's still sovereign in all things. Uh, it does not mean he caused that. It does not mean that we advocate or bless that choice. Um, and we don't, we still believe that God is a sovereign God, even in things like that. But that's, I'm sorry, that's the best I have. My bad. Um, uh, you, you here and then you there. Yep. You're, you're, yes, yes, the person pointing to yourself, you. Yep. Um, I have two questions. Okay. Number one, how's your wife? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you distinguish as believers who have the fruit of the spirit, which one of the elements of that is self-control, and sure. need to be self-control? Right, right. But then how is that different than what how does it look different? Sure, when does it cross the line? Yeah, okay. So my wife is good. Uh, her grief has been very different than mine. Her experience has been very different than mine. We are very different people. Uh, I am an open book. Um, I'm a verbal processor. She's very quiet. She's more private. Um, she's great. She's lovely. Um, and, and you know what, guys? You know people say uh, that the statistic is that couples who lose a child are more likely to get divorced. That's actually not true. Um, that's not a scientifically based statistic. There was a study in the last 10 years um, that looked at couples who've lost children versus couples um, who have not, and actually couples who have lost children. Uh, the divorce rate is lower than the average population. So that's one little thing, but thank you for asking. Uh, and then what the, the distinction I would make in terms of like managing our pain versus having self-control is when I think about us trying to manage our, our pain, I think about turning to idols. So getting really, really busy or picking up an addiction or just pretending like things are not wrong. That's what I mean by trying to manage our pain, trying to heal ourselves primarily through idolatry. Um, so is that, is that a, a sufficient distinction? Okay, great. How about you? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, one thing is you have to really, really lean on the Lord's wisdom on what to say and not to say, uh, because uh, especially like in the immediate, an immediate circumstance, you don't want to sound preachy. Um, and you don't want to say, yeah. And so I think the first thing I would say is to be the best person at empathizing with them, the best person at suffering with them. I think that's the first thing you can do to witness because I will tell you, so I have a friend who, um, uh, his wife, uh, went through 9-11 and then she was diagnosed with cancer not long after that. And she was not a believer at this point. And all of her non-believing friends hit the road. She never, she didn't hear from any of them. Um, and, uh, and so 
some of her believing believing friends kind of showed up, even though she wasn't a believer. And so I think that as Christians, like we um, we have because of the Holy Spirit and because because of the cross, because we know that on the other side of the cross is, is resurrection. Like we are uniquely equipped to enter into people's pain and to you know to handle hard things and to listen to them. So I think to you know to be uh, a really good, consistent, empathetic friend is helpful. And then I think you know there there can be an opportunity. Um, probably to share, talk about the hope that you have. Like, um, you have to be really careful to try to make share a common experience uh, to suggest that you've gone through something that they're going through. But, um, but to talk about, you know, the, the hope I have and things like this, it, it has to do with the gospel. I would speak more in your own voice, this is my experience, than sounding preachy to them. Um, but that, I think that's, those are some words that I, I might offer. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.